Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Our nation's founders gathered in taverns to enjoy lively conversation over a local brew, and so do we. It's a special edition of Pints and Politics, presented by the Gazette and Iowa Public Radio. I'm Ben Kiefer. And I'm Erin Jordan. Tonight's panel includes Althea Cole, Gazette columnist, Tom Barton, the Gazette's Deputy Des Moines Bureau Chief, and Todd Dorman, Gazette Insights and Opinion Editor. Our special guest is Dr. Christopher Peters, a Republican who ran for Congress twice in Iowa's former second district and a regular attendee of this Pints and Politics event. Welcome, Chris. So I'm going to kick us off. Um, This week, President Joe Biden gave his third State of the Union address. Um, We heard some heckling from Republicans, but I also read that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy applauded a few times and even stood up at one point in support. Are there any elements of Biden's remaining agenda that you think could get GOP support in the House? As a newbie, I'll just say no, probably not. Although I'm hoping he'll talk uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene out of that coat uh, again. <laughs> yeah, that was quite a coat. I think I saw something like on Ice Planet Hoth in Star Wars or something that looked a, a little bit like that. What, what about something like the economy or border security? They both think, uh, we all think border security is important, but the Democrats and Republicans have a different take on what needs to be done, what should be done. Just throwing out ideas on what, where we, could we get a consensus? We long overdue for an immigration overhaul. Is there anything there? Well, it, it's just, you know, when you, when you have a Republican House and a Democratic Senate and a Democrat in the, in the White House, I mean, the, the House has obviously, their leadership and, and rank and file have, have talked a lot about how it's Biden's fault that the economy is as bad as it is. So their plan for improving the economy is is defeating Joe Biden. So that you know that creates a situation where there's not going to be probably a lot of compromised legislation. I mean they'll they'll pass bills on some things. I mean Congress always does. But uh, as far as big ticket items like immigration reform, I would be really surprised and. Uh, I don't think there, even if, even if Kevin McCarthy wanted to do immigration reform, I don't think the votes are there in, in the House to do that because the hardliners are, are, are not going to go for reform and, and he's got a narrow majority and needs to keep everybody on board, I mean, just to remain speaker. So it's, I think we're going to see this year is going to be fairly gridlocked and then we go into the election next year and then the incentive to do things is, is going to kind of fade. So we heard President Biden repeatedly say, let's finish the job in his speech, which um, seems clear that he plans to run again in 2024. But who will, we, who will he run against? A Republican, likely. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the Republicans. Thanks for narrowing it down. Anyone else? Maybe a, maybe a libertarian also, and uh, you know there might be other parties. So... I, I, 
don't know. I mean, you know, Donald Trump, you know, he's running. I mean, he's already announced his campaign. You've seen some enthusiasm for uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida, who sort of brings the Trump agenda without as much baggage as Trump brings with him. And there, are, you know, I think there are going to be several candidates because I think there is a feeling that Trump has been weakened, and the midterm losses that he presided over, people that he endorsed, have weakened him. And so I don't want to say that Donald Trump won't be the nominee, but I think as days go by, I think it's less and less likely that he will be. So it will be one of the Ron DeSantis or somebody else. It sounds like Nikki Haley may be close to an announcement. Chris, do you have any um, thoughts about how she might shake things up? Well, just talking to my Republican friends in, in Johnson County, they're pretty excited about her, actually, but they also feel like that if uh, DeSantis, for example, gets in the race, it's probably his to lose. Um, so they're, they like her, as do I. I think she'd be a, a great change for the country. Former ambassador, former governor, um, takes a lot of uh, positions, has taken a lot of positions, which uh, at, at odds with her own party and odds with, uh, you know, kind of the, the way things people expect Republicans to do. So I think she'd be great. But then uh, we've got Mike Pence and Tim Scott who have visited or are going to visit. I can't remember which one's which now. But uh, so there's some interest, obviously. So um, Mike Pence, I believe, is uh, going to be here in the Cedar Rapids area uh, next week. Nikki Haley uh, announced that uh, she'll be uh, in Marion uh, later this month, I think on February 21st. Uh, Asa Hutchison, former Arkansas governor, is also going to be in the state uh, this month. So, uh, yeah, we'll see quite a bit of activity just in the next couple of weeks from uh, Republican hopefuls. I'd like to tap into the expertise in our audience because, as we know, they are to the, what does our scientific data tell us, to the 95th percentile political junkies out there. Pretty smart. Pretty smart people. So I want you all to take off your partisan hat, your GOP hat, your Democratic hat, your independent hat, and weigh in on this question with your applause. Now, uh, although all signs point to it, President Biden has not yet officially declared a bid for 2024. Clap if you think the Democrats have the best chance of holding on to the White House in 2024 with Biden. Okay. Now clap if you think the Dem Democrats have the best chance of holding on to the White House with someone else. My internal applause meter, which was recalibrated just last week, says that's pretty much 50-50. I think? think it was a little stronger for Biden than, you think so? than otherwise. Well, and, but, you know, yeah. Althea said something that made me maybe reevaluate my position because... I do that a lot, sorry. Yeah, well, it, it, it happens. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm trying to learn. I am. Uh, that, I mean, if you do have a large, large field, like 12, 14, 15 candidates, it probably helps Donald Trump because he may have the biggest, you know, block of voters that will stick with him going forward. And that's basically what helped him last time, is that you know, nobody could settle on an alternative to Trump, and then so Trump became the only alternative. You know, and you've seen Trump in recent days sort of go after Ron DeSantis pretty hard, and I think, that's, I think Trump feels he's the biggest rival that he has, and so Trump versus Ron DeSantis, you know, it's just kind of like grab popcorn and sit back and watch that unfold because 
that's, that's going to be pretty brutal. <laughs> you should re-ask the question, Biden with versus Trump versus Biden versus DeSantis. Right. We had plenty of pints in politics before the okay. 2024 election. Yeah, yeah it's... <laughs> so maybe we'll, we'll define it. We've got to pace ourselves. I mean, you, We've got to pace ourselves. I mean, you exactly. see polls that show Americans don't, would rather that neither Trump or Biden would yeah. run. They don't want that election again. But an incumbent president's difficult to beat. I mean, it's just, it doesn't happen very often. So, and if Joe Biden, I mean, as he showed there, you know, the knock on him is, you know, a lot of times is that he's old and he can't handle himself in, in, in public. And, but I think during the State of the Union, he, he did a fairly good job of trying to assuage that that fear that he's, you know, can't mix it up anymore. And I think he mixed it up with the Republicans that were sort of heckling him. And, and I, I think Kevin McCarthy was kind of like, you know, shush, because I, I, don't, I don't think that was helping. I think it was actually helping Biden. Uh, that's, that's the point I wanted to talk to Althea and, and, and Chris about. We had some shushing from uh, the new speaker. Uh, so what is that sh- shushing, shushing? Uh, tell us about the divisions within his ranks uh, as uh, Speaker of the House, Chris. Well, as a parent, I can tell you, shushing rarely works. Um, so, <laughs> true. and there's always so those true. divisions. So uh, I think it's a, yeah. He's got a he's got a very contentious household to look after. Um, yeah, it was. It, you really felt bad for Kevin McCarthy. At least I did, looking at him up there, like, God, what a horrible place to be. But. I thought he, given the situation, he handled himself pretty well. The rest of the group, not so much. Ideas on that, Althea? I mean, I don't know if I felt bad for Kevin McCarthy during <laughs> that speaker vote. I remember sitting at home thinking I'm at home on a Friday night watching really exciting stuff on TV, and that is the Speaker of the House vote. Uh, that was a Friday, right? I don't know. Days go by so quickly. Um, so, yeah, that was interesting. As, as far as the booze at the State of the Union, I can't say I endorse that kind of lack of decorum, for lack of a better word. I, I don't think it should continue. Some of the rowdiness I did have to chuckle at, like that whole when the president started talking about his executive orders regarding non-compete agreements and how he brought out that analogy about Burger King and McDonald's workers. <laughs> That I was like, you know, you were you were doing so well, sir, and then you brought out that, and uh, so I didn't mind the booze on that because I was just I was like, what what are you what are you saying? What are you doing? So I had, had one political analyst liken the booing and the the um, sounds from the audience there in the U.S. House of Representatives to oh, we're becoming more like the British in their parliament, which I thought is a terribly highbrow way of describing what happened. <laughs> Yeah, that's. I mean, that was what immediately came to mind for me, and I, I actually kind of, I actually kind of like watching British Parliament for that, Isn't that reason nice? because yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a free. I mean, you know, I, I, I wasn't offended by it. I think the more entertaining the State of the Union gets, the the, the better. Because, frankly, I've sat through some really. Uh, remember when Bill Clinton used to speak for like two hours? Yes. <laughs> I mean. I would have I would have been glad if somebody would have stood up and said, shorten this, you know, <laughs> you cut. Know, and, and the original tradition was just to send a, a written yeah. statement to Congress, and that uh, persisted for all, most of our country's early history. I think we should go back to that. Yeah, we could, we could go back just a letter. It's going to have been handled in an email. To the president. <laughs> Send an email. 
Send a, a text. A tweet. <laughs> the tweet of the union. It would be... It would be... I, yeah, I, TikTok. I, <laughs> I do find it interesting, though, that, I mean, not too long ago, um, you know, during President Obama's State of the Union, you had Joe Wilson from South Carolina with his famous, you lie. And I just think it's interesting, the reaction to that and how kind of seismic that was in political circles and the response that that got. I mean, I think he ended up getting an official, you know, reprimand from, from the House compared to, you know, kind of where we are today and what we saw uh, during the State of the Union this week. We'll be back with more of this special Pints and Politics edition of River to River, recorded yesterday evening at CSPS in Cedar Rapids. I'm Ben Kiefer. This is IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And we're back with this special edition of River to River, Pints and Politics, presented by the Gazette and Iowa Public Radio, Ben Kiefer, with Aaron Jordan. And our... We better reintroduce our panelists, Aaron. Yes. Tonight we've got Tom Barton, Gazette politics reporter, Althea Cole, Gazette columnist, Todd Dorman, Gazette insights and opinion editor, and Chris Peters, a Republican in eastern Iowa who ran for Congress twice. And I think uh, in this segment, at least to begin with, we're going to start off with some state politics. What are we, about a, a month into the 2023 session, aren't we? We are. And um, Tom was just saying how the first four weeks have been like a whirlwind. Um, Late last month, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a bill to make private school students eligible for a $7,600 a year education savings account to pay for tuition and other expenses at private K-12 schools in Iowa. The program will be open to more students each year with a full cost to the state of $345 million um, when implemented. So I wanted to look at that number first. Um, Tom, is that new money or is this money already being spent now on public schools? So it's, uh, it, it's new money um, because, as you mentioned, um, it's going to be phased in over um, a couple of years and with full implementation, um, that funding, um, there, there's no income restrictions and so you have current private school students that would be able to, uh, to, to utilize that funding. Um, so, um, again, uh, under the bill, for those um, not familiar, it would allow students to take the state's full per-pupil cost, which is about more than $7,600 next year, um, to pay for private school tuition and other expenses. Um, and, and, again, that's open to um, students who are currently in public school that want to move to private, but also, again, um, students who, who are in private school, have never been in public school, um, would be able to utilize um, that funding. So the bill passed with all Democrats um, in opposition and 12 Republicans uh, voting against it. Let's talk through some of the largest concerns from opponents. 
So opponents say that this is going to siphon money out of public schools to fund unaccountable private institutions that aren't subject to the same oversight as public schools and that it devotes um, tax money to schools that could turn away students with disabilities or um, families whose values don't align with theirs. But, you know, I was thinking about how many private schools in Iowa now, because of this legislation, may be planning on ways to expand, possibly adding high schools and um, other curriculum options. You know, this is a real boon, uh, not just to those schools, but to private school families. Uh, what have, you know, you on the panel, what have you heard from families who do want to send their kids to private school or are, or are already doing so? Okay, everybody's looking at me, so I... <laughs> I assume this question is going to start with me. Um, they are very excited, just to, I, I mean, the long and the short of it is they are very excited. Um, I, I think there's this notion out there that private school families, you know, those who already put their uh, kids in private school must be, you know, wealthy enough to afford it. Um, just because they can afford it or just because they can come up with the money, it doesn't mean they're necessarily wealthy people. Um, and we'll, we'll see that out of, you know, whatever private school families who currently have their kids in private school, um, if they are eligible right away to use the ESA money, that would indicate that their income does not make them wealthy people. Um, I've got members of my family who actually will qualify next year. Um, who have really had to work very, very hard, scrimp and save, make other sacrifices financially because they believe that the Lutheran school system uh, is the right fit for their kids. So they're very, very excited about it. Um, you know, homeschool families thinking about their educational options, um, people who, you know, really want their kids to thrive in public schools, but for whatever reason, and there are myriad, um, their kids aren't having the best time of it, uh, all of a sudden this opens up some extra options for them and they're really excited about that. I understand that a private company will administer this program. Um, why is this being moved out of the Department of Education and how will this company be accountable to Iowans? So the, the way that the education savings accounts would work would be similar to the state's current 529 college saving, uh, savings plans, um, which are managed by an investment company, Vanguard, and it's overseen by the Iowa State Treasurer's Office. Um, so similarly, the accounts would be created in the state treasury under control of the Iowa Department of Education. But then, yes, you would have a private company that would administer the program and oversee the payments. So um, the Iowa Department of Education is working to develop a operational plan for the program, um, including the application process, according to the governor's office. Um, and again, according to the governor's office, that plan will be refined and finalized once a third-party vendor is selected to assist with program development and management. Um, the state has issued a request for proposal for businesses with experience managing similar programs, and those proposals are due uh, February 14th. And so the, the vendor selected will, um, I guess, support the transfer of, of funds um, from the state to families of eligible students and um, work to ensure program compliance wanted to stay in the area of uh, education in our state, but then uh, shift to uh, other legislation, uh, legislation advancing, um, not signed into law yet, that would uh, restrict what Iowa schools can teach about gender identity, also the question of parental consent when kids identify as transgender. Uh, one proposal, uh, parents would have to provide written consent before a school could call a transgender student by a name or pronouns that affirm that gender identity. And also, uh, 
uh, schools could not knowingly withhold information about a student's gender identity or their intention to transition to a different gender. Then we also have akin to that um, uh, a, a proposal that would prohibit Iowa schools from including gender identity in kindergarten through eighth grade in, in curriculum and instruction. I wonder what the panel thinks about those because we know to a large degree, we can take Florida for example, they mirror some other, the Republican playbook in, 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 uh, not only here in Iowa but in other states. Thoughts? Well, I, <laughs> thoughts. Um, I think of, of those bills, and I think all of them would be damaging in different ways, but I think the one that really stands out is, I think it is House File 9, which <clears throat> is the one you referred to that would require school personnel who receive information that a, a, you know, a student is transgender or questioning their gender or transitioning or asking for support, they would have to report that student's status to their parents. And I mean, I understand the argument about parental rights, and in a perfect world, every family would, you know, deal with this in a loving and supportive environment, but that's not the case. We just know that in reality. So I, I interviewed a, a couple of uh, students from Linmar today who you know, talked about how important it's been for that school district to have gender support plans that, that, that at least enable kids to live their authentic, live as their authentic selves during the school day. Teachers respect their, their pronouns. Uh, they respect, you know, the, the transition or the, uh, you know, the questioning that they're going through. Uh, and if they, you know, if they don't want their parents to know about that, which under the Lindmar proposal right now allows them to do that, I mean, I think they know their home life a lot better than a school administrator and certainly a, a state lawmaker. And, and, when you, and when you look at the potential consequence of this, I mean, we know transgender students have a higher rate of suicide ideation and actually committing suicide. They're they have a, a rate of being homeless that's a lot higher than just your average kid. And part of that is because they're not accepted for, you know, as they transition or if they're transgender. So I just, I think what the legislature is doing is taking situations where kids can learn, which is the primary goal of public schools, in an environment where they feel safe and accepted and turning it on its head to say, you can't trust a teacher because that teacher has to, has to tell your parents. You can't trust a guidance counselor. You can't trust anybody. You can't tell anyone what's happening because you're going to face, you know, whatever you believe you're going to face. And I just think all of this is, is irresponsible. I mean, it's irresponsible for the state legislature to sort of reach into local school districts and dictate how you know they accept or support these kids? So, I mean that I, I don't mean to. I'm, I'm on my soapbox. I'm I'm sorry. I'll take you. I'll, I'll kick you. I'll kick you off. <laughs> but, and I mean, and you know, with regard to banning books and stuff, I mean, 
I understand that people are concerned about books being age appropriate to, 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 you know, to certain age groups and classes, and they, you know, they're concerned about content. I would rather have education professionals in the local school district make that decision than state lawmakers with a political axe to grind. I mean, that's, that's just how I feel. So. So regarding the first, I'm not going to address the book things. I haven't really looked into that at all. But regarding the first issue, um, I'm going to fa- I actually favor this legislation, at least in theory, for, for two reasons. And one, which I haven't heard brought up, and I'm surprised. But first one is I think parents do have a primary obligation to their kids, kids much more so than school officials do. But the other thing is, as Todd correctly mentioned, uh, these children have a much higher incidence of mental illness, suicidal ideation, of actual uh, suicides themselves. We don't know why. Maybe that's some of that's due to rejection home, but a lot of it's just part of the overall process, which we do not understand well in the medical community. We pretend we do, but we don't. Um, I worry that if uh, so the teacher hears that a, a kid has said that I want to transition, and he says I don't want to tell the parents, and then that child does commit suicide, I think the school district's putting themselves in a very liable condition to being sued for not divulging that information so that the parents could get that child help. So I'm really worried about the position they're putting well, themselves in. I just want to clarify, I didn't say that they were mentally ill. And I think that's a label that gets applied because people talk about gender dysphoria, when in reality, gender dysphoria results from the non-acceptance of them as transgender. I mean, that they have to deal with that. It's not that they have dysphoria because they don't, they're transitioning to a different gender. Gender. But to clarify, I didn't say they were mentally ill because of that. I sure. said that they have a much higher incidence of mental illness, sure. anxiety, depression. Right. 30% of females that are identified as having gender dysphoria are somewhere on the autism spectrum. I mean, these are, I think, people still come yeah. to those mental illnesses. I mean, it's, I just, um, I mean, I think in my own school district, Linmar, I think there's a lot of consensus that this is a good policy and that it's going well. But it doesn't help that we've had a lot of politicians come in and stir the water, you know, muddy the water, and use the school district as an example of, you know, whatever they want to use as an example of. But I think the policy has not caused problems. I think it's helped kids, and that's you know, the impression that I've gotten from the people that I've talked to. Well, so, and, and, and I think it's a local decision also. As I said, with books, you know, state lawmakers coming in to dictate this stuff, I mean, I just think we have a school board. I mean, we'll have school board elections later this year, and I can only imagine how that's going to go. But, uh, you know, we have this local decision making these... You know, school districts know these kids better than lawmakers. I just don't know why we have to have a state law that dictates how school districts handle this. And, you know, we do have a law in the state that says you can't discriminate against Iowans that, you know, based on gender identity. So I think to, to basically force school administrators and teachers to out these kids is a violation of that of that law, but, and I'm sure it will be litigated, so. (laughs) 
So to that point, I was just going to add that with regard to the Linmar District's policy that um, Republicans um, have, have seized on, um, that was a policy that was largely developed based off of guidance and policy from the Iowa Department of Education, um, a policy that no longer is on their website, but at one point was. Um, <laughs> Um, and and, and as, as Todd mentioned, you know, also based off of Iowa Civil Rights Code that provides protections for Iowans um, for uh, gender identity, sexual orientation. Um, and it was also pointed out and brought up in um, committee and subcommittee uh, hearings uh, the last couple of weeks in the Iowa legislature um, that, uh, that, that federal policy as well, uh, Title IX, um, provides protections as well for, for, for students to provide, you know, equal protection and, and equal opportunities in education for, for all students and that, um, that that extends as well to gender identity. Um, so anyway. Let me just toss in you know, some of the science here also because on our panel we have an MD in the form of uh, Dr. Chris uh, Peters. Um, the American Medical Association wrote in a 2021 <laughs> letter uh, that, quote, trans and non-binary gender identities are normal expressions of human identity and expression. The AMA recommends enabling young people to explore and live the gender that they choose. Dr. Peters, Chris, shouldn't our laws reflect the latest in science? We don't have hardly any science regarding this. So you're denying what the AMA says is, is, is scientific fact. You're denying it. There is very little scientific study of these individuals, particularly when we deal with minors. There just is very little. Um, I can just point out anecdotally, and that's about all we got, uh, the largest gender transition clinic in the UK, Travistock, I think, just recently closed or is closing. Um, other European nations are scaling this back, their treatment of minors for gender dysphoria. They're realizing some of the harms we potentially are causing these kids, as far as like puberty blockers, hormones, et cetera, um, these are not reversible, despite what they're talked about. Um, what adults do is a whole different thing, but when we're dealing with the minors, we're really not, we don't know much. And uh, So you're saying this is based in politics, liberal politics, not in medical science? Yeah, it is. As a doctor, you're saying? In large part, yes, that's true. Um, it, is, it is true, there's very, little, there's very little study on this. Well, I mean, schools aren't, prescribing puberty blockers no, and, and recommending, you know, medical treatments. They're just trying to, you know, treat kids that are in the situation they're in, you know, with support and, and to, you know, make sure they have a safe place at school. So, I mean, I understand there are a lot of arguments about it, and, but I just, bottom line, I just, I just don't think the legislature needs to intervene I mean, you know, Linmar is in a different situation than maybe a smaller school district or, I mean, you, you really need to set rules and create systems that apply to the students that you have. So I just, the idea of the legislature coming in and telling them that they can't do that just seems, it just seems wrong. When we return, more highlights from a conversation recorded last night at CSPS in Cedar Rapids before a live audience. It's Pints and Politics from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
And we're back with more highlights from a conversation that took place yesterday evening, recorded before a live audience in Cedar Rapids, a special Pints and Politics edition of our program, River to River, IPR partnering with the Gazette. Our panelists, Gazette journalists Todd Dorman, Althea Cole, and Tom Barton. Our special guest, former Republican congressional candidate Dr. Chris Peters. With regard to that local control question, um, Governor Reynolds suggested last week that if one school board removes a book from a school collection, all schools in the state should follow suit. Doesn't that seem like all the school districts in the state could be kind of held hostage by the most extreme school board, either Republican or Democrat? Yeah, it sounds like a race to the bottom. I I totally disagree with that one. Well, her staff modified her position on Monday to say, if a school district bans a book, that doesn't mean it has to be banned everywhere, but you would need to have written permission from your parents in, in, in other districts. So, I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, they keep saying these books are obscene, but they're not obscene. We have an obscenity law in Iowa. It lays out when something's obscene. And if a work is taken as a whole and has value in various ways, it's not obscene. But they, the whole strategy is to basically, you know, like they talk about the book Gender Queer, which is a, a, a graphic m- memoir of a, a non, from a non-binary author who basically just sort of tells the story of growing up and, and dealing with, with the questions that they had. And then, you know, they, they'll take five pictures out of that book. It's 240 pages. There are literally hundreds of illustrations in that book. I mean, that's the strategy, is to, is to pull the most shocking passages out of books that, are, that offer far more to readers and say they're obscene, which under Iowa law, you, that doesn't work. I like the way Chris put it when he said race to the bottom. Um, I, I don't think it is a good idea to you know, have all schools ban one book or ban a particular book if, if just one parent or one school district bans it. Like, and again, Chris said race to the bottom. Um, I also don't find it particularly advisable to uh, you know, defend a book just because somebody wants to ban it. Um, there's still content in these books that should definitely be discussed. Um, I've, you know, having taken a look at some of the books, uh, one of them, I, I think it was called like Let's Talk About It, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the author. Uh, looking at the content and, you know, saying, do I think this is, is best for, you know, a 12-year-old kid to read when they are learning about, you know, what we called the birds and the bees? Um, in one section, they started talking about pornography as a way to learn about the, you know, sexual development and, you know, sexual interaction between human beings. And I have to admit, I was concerned with how, how blithe it was when it mentioned pornography as a possible resource. I mean, the only caveat it really included was, you know, keep in mind, it's not real. And yeah, to say the least, um, but it really didn't talk about any of the other possible dangers of pornography, like, you know, you might be watching people who are, you know, victims of human trafficking. Um, You might be watching people who have consumed, you know, hard drugs in order to, you know, perform these acts. Um, You might be watching seriously, seriously depraved acts that you somehow stumbled across because you're watching 
pornography. So given that it was so, and I use the word blithe in you know, describing porn as a possible reference, it was still something with which I was tremendously uncomfortable. And so even though, you know, if one school bans a book, should every school ban it? Absolutely not, that's, that's ridiculous. But I also would be a little bit nervous at the idea of rushing to defend books simply because one is offended by the notion of such a book ban. And, and to that, it's worth noting that not all of the, the books or, or library materials that are being challenged, you know, deal with sexually explicit materials. There are also books that are being challenged that deal with issues of race, like The Hate You Give. Um, you know, library materials that um, confront um, difficult issues of, of race that are also now being challenged that have legitimate educational purposes. Yes, they're uncomfortable, and there may be not um, conversations that maybe some parents want to have or, or, or want their children to, to confront, um, but again, still have legitimate educational value um, and spark um, needed discussions about, um, again, a, a difficult subject that we're facing here in our nation. These have, of course, been in our news in the last couple of weeks. Most recently, the Democratic National Committee voted to remove Iowa from the early window of presidential nominating states. And then uh, before that, so a couple of weeks ago, the Iowa Democratic Party State Central Committee elected Rita Hart as the next party chair, a former state senator who had uh, won two races in a district that uh, Donald Trump carried. She lost to Marionette Miller-Meeks, the congresswoman, in 2020 by just six votes. We all remember that in Iowa's old second district. So this is just to tee up uh, a discussion about the state of the Iowa Democratic Party losing the caucuses, the first in the nation status. The Republicans stay put in their calendar, unless you have some other information that I don't know about. H how will Iowa slipping behind, in terms of order, reshape politics here and reshape the nominating process for the next uh, Democratic nominee? Well, for this current cycle, since Biden's probably going to be the nominee, it won't affect uh, really much for the Democrats uh, this in 2024. But um, the Iowa Democratic Party has a wonderful opportunity to reinvent itself. It, it really should take that as that opportunity. Um, I think we saw a rejection of kind of coastal elite values, uh, to borrow a phrase. Uh, we want to see, I think Iowans want to see more uh, more politics that are directed at the everyday average Iowan. And uh, I think Democratic Party has a wonderful opportunity to try and reach out to that. Not everybody is, uh, not everybody that even is a GOP supporter is all Trump, for example. Um, so they have a tremendous opportunity to get bigger um, and more influential because they couldn't get much smaller or less influential right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so I would just say, um, from the Democrats that I've, that I've talked to, um, more are less concerned about the loss of the First Nation status for the Iowa caucuses and more concerned about rebuilding the Iowa Democratic Party and where do we go from here? How do Iowa Democrats win elections? How do we reverse the, um, the losses that we've seen in the last election cycles? And that seems to be more of the concern. Um, that being said, you know, 
losing the, the, the Iowa caucuses, losing the first in the nation status, getting kicked out of the early window altogether, um, does present a lot of problems for the party as it looks to rebuild, right? Um, you know, you're, you're, it's going to be a, a blow to fundraising. You know, you're going to lose a lot of national donors who in the past, um, you know, have pumped money into the state and, and, and pumped money into um, congressional campaigns and, and gubernatorial campaigns and, and, and uh, other state-level campaigns. It also presents a problem for, for party building, right? Because you had a lot of activists that would flock to the state um, during, <laughs> during, during, during the caucuses um, and, uh, you know, would stick around and would then um, volunteer and, and help out with different campaigns. So there, there are definitely a lot of um, uh, hurdles. Um, the other thing that I, that I would add is while the DNC last week voted on the primary calendar, um, nothing is settled um, because you have a situation where both New Hampshire and Georgia um, largely aren't going to be able to fulfill the requirements that the DNC set out for them um, setting their primary dates and, and, and running their primaries. Um, you know, New Hampshire has uh, a state law that says that um, they have to be um, the first primary and essentially have said, we're not going to change our law. We're going to go ahead. We're going to go rogue. You know, we're going to do as we've always done anyway. Um, and, and you have Republicans in the state who said that they're not willing to, to, to change state law to comply with the DNC's rules and requirements. Um, in, in Georgia, it's much of the same thing, although there it's a situation where um, the um, uh, Republican Secretary of State has said that he's not going to budge, he's not going to change you know, um, state rules where, um, you know, potentially you could run into a situation where um, you could have uh, loss of delegates um, for, for the state parties and, and, and run afoul of, um, again, the, the primary calendar that uh, the Republicans have set forward. So, I mean, this is, this is something that's going to continue. You're going to have states jacking for their preferred position um, and uh, potentially a situation where, um, you know, you've, you've got a calendar that's just not going to work with New Hampshire and Georgia. All right. So this is a question from the audience. Broadly wants to know what the panel thinks about the George Santos situation. <laughs> Should Congress, Republicans and Democrats, get rid of him? And what can be done to stop this type of behavior in the future? Um, you know, they, they note the district did not elect George Santos, um, they elected kind of a fictional character that doesn't exist. So, you know, how do we ensure this sort of thing doesn't happen in the future? Remember in high school taking political science, remember these pictures from like the 18th century where they got a bunch of tar and a bunch of feathers, I think. <laughs> we could bring, written State of the Union and, and tar and feathers, I think that would be good. <laughs> well, I, I think you have to impeach a, a president of the United States which George Santos is, is that not right? Is that, is he not president? Will, will be in 2024. Oh. Well, and he's also Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, which makes it even more complicated. So, I mean, you know. And Speaker of the House. So it sounds like there's really very little way to, for Republicans um, or Democrats to, to do anything about it in, in Congress. Is that correct? 
Well, my, my understanding is Congress can just hold a vote and expel him, um, but... Isn't McCarthy's stance on this just to let it work its way through the ethics process? Right now, process? his stance is an ethics... Is that his answer? Is that an actual yes. thing? He that... needs his vote. <laughs> I mean, that's... Not sure for what. He's not getting anything done anyway, yeah, but... Right. To keep yeah. him speaker, maybe, if yeah, one, there's, there's one member of the House objects, they can... Well, George can be speaker. Well, <laughs> he, he could be a consensus choice, sort of, you know, between the dishonest and the... But which George Santos are you talking about? Yes. There well, are multiples. Yes. We don't know how many George Santos there actually are. We probably never will. The one in the sweater. That's, that's, the, that's the guy. Not the, the one with, in Brazil? With the look filler. Also, is George Santos his real name? Do we even know that? You're listening to a special Pints and Politics edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, listening to highlights from a conversation recorded last night in Cedar Rapids before a live audience. Our panelists, Gazette journalists Tom Barton, Althea Cole, and Todd Dorman. Our special guest, former Republican congressional candidate Dr. Chris Peters. We talked about George Santos here. I went out in the audience before we started our session here and uh, asked a few people if they'd ever uh, told a fib, a lie, an exaggeration to impress them. I assured them of their anonymity. Um, One woman said she lied to a boyfriend about her athleticism or (laughs) to someone in a group about that. Another that I found most interesting told a boyfriend years and years ago that uh, this fabrication, she said, that Quote, I was sane and my family was sane. (laughs) I like that. So the question for the panel, since George Santos has lowered the bar on resumes and now it appears, if this trend continues, we can really put anything we like on our resumes, what untruth would you most like to add to your resume to impress others? Do we have any takers on the panel? Um, Sure, I'll go. I'm going to borrow from from George Santos that uh, my wife's going to be shocked to hear this, that I was once a Brazilian drag queen named (laughs) Katara. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, honey. When I I was a part-timer in the register, Des Moines register, just in case you don't know, uh, sports department, this is actually something I did. They, they had these certificates designating people for, you know, like all-state basketball. And so I typed one up for myself and hung it in my, in my, uh, in my fraternity house room. And people were like, wow, you're first team all-state? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, I was. <laughs> so I think if I could lie on my resume, maybe I'd say that I won the, the Master Columnist Award at the, at the Iowa Newspaper Association because I, I think that's the only way I'm ever going to get one. <laughs> I'll print up a certificate for you. These are fabrications, but what I'm saying is the truth. Did you know that Donald Sutherland is so enamored of Iowa Public Radio and River to River that Donald Sutherland named his son after me? <laughs> Oh, I didn't know that. No. Wow. That's uh Me and Donald Sutherland, we're tight. Yeah. Okay. We're tight. <laughs> Named his son after me. The Grateful Dead wrote a whole song about me, Ben. So they did. They did. Yeah. 
There's a song called Althea. Yes, I know. Some guy in the what, like the 1600s wrote a poem about me. He was so enamored and enchanted <laughs> with me um, that he wrote a poem called To Althea from Prison. That was about me. <laughs> wow. Wow. With my last name being Barton, I guess I would say that uh, I would put on there that I'm a vodka baron. <laughs> oh. Yeah? Yeah, right? For, free, nice. free samples after the show? Yeah, yeah. All right. Absolutely. In, in pretend world, sure. <laughs> All right, have we finished up, Aaron? I think we are. We've had a great show here. Lots of good questions from the audience. Thank you so much. And that next, the next Pints in Politics? The next Pints in Politics is um, April 6th, and that's here at CSPS. So I want to thank CSPS for hosting us tonight, and thanks to our panelists, Chris Peters, Tom Barton, Althea Cole, and Todd Dorman. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. And that does it for this special Pints and Politics edition of River to River, recorded yesterday evening, February 9th, at CSPS in Cedar Rapids before a live audience. My co-host was Gazette reporter Aaron Jordan. Our panelists, Todd Dorman, Althea Cole, and Tom Barton of the Gazette. Our special guest, former Republican congressional candidate, Dr. Chris Peters. Find out how you can attend future Pints in Politics at thegazette.com. Our producer and audio editor today, Samantha McIntosh. Sound engineer, Jim Davies. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.